Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a podcast about the humanities and interdisciplinarity, produced by the Cohen Center for the Humanities at James Madison University. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. My name is Connor, and today I'm sitting down with Dr. Michael Gubser, history professor at JMU. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gubser. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself. So as you said, Connor, I'm Michael Goopser. I am a professor in the history department. I have been here since 2005. So, wow, that is going on 18 years. It's been a long time and it feels like yesterday. So in history, I'll say, I guess, a few of the highlights that I've done over the course of my career. So in the history department, I teach in two areas, or maybe I'll say three areas. So one, I am by training a European intellectual historian, and we can talk about that if you like, but I teach courses on modern Europe. So 19th and 20th century courses. Um, That's one area I teach in. So for instance, uh, the Holocaust, or right now I'm teaching East Europe under communism. I also, so mostly in Central and Eastern Europe is my focus. I also teach intellectual history courses. So that is my field of training. Intellectual history is history of philosophy, social theory, aesthetic theory. So it necessarily brings me into fields beyond history, right? Sort of the history of ideas, how people have thought about time or nature or morality, um, whether in philosophy or how they thought about arts over the course of several centuries. And I tend to focus on European thinkers. The third area that I teach in, those both come out of my graduate training. So I was a modern European intellectual historian in graduate school. But after graduate school, I could not immediately get a job. And during this period of academic unemployment, I worked for a couple of years for a USAID contractor that ran education projects and civil society projects or development projects in countries overseas, in Asia, Africa, Latin America. And that was life-changing and research-changing. And so now I also teach and research in the history of international development. So those are my three, those are my three teaching areas at JMU in, in the history department. I've also had a chance to do some other fun things at JMU. So for example, for about four years, I ran a speaker series called Democracy in Peril that got academic and professional experts to speak about topics of contemporary relevance, uh, immigration, the presidency, uh, foreign crises for an audience at JMU. And it brought people from both JMU and the community. And that ran from 2017 until 2021. Currently, I am a faculty fellow in the dean's office. So I help other faculty push their research forward. So I run a workshop for faculty where they can bring grant applications and chapters or articles that they're working on to get workshop by other faculty. I help review grants if people would like an outside eye to give feedback. So a series of things like that. What's particularly nice about it through the dean's office is that it's interdisciplinary. And that's sort of central to my training. Intellectual history is interdisciplinary. Development is interdisciplinary. And so I'm able to bring that 
to the dean's office and encouraging in encouraging research. And it really helps because people who study different fields look at what they study in different ways. And increasingly, when you write things, you want to be able to speak to people in a in a broad range of fields. And that is what I have been trained to do. Right. I'm a historian, but I write the history of philosophy or of art. Uh, development is, you know, deals with economics and other technical fields, and I'm doing it through history. So I've appreciated that opportunity to carry that kind of interdisciplinary approach into the dean's office. I suppose I should say, by way of background, one of the things that fed into that is that last year, 2021 to 2022, I was on leave. I had received a Guggenheim Fellowship. And so I was on leave all year working on a book on the history of international development. And so um, I th- that uh, helped lead to this dean's office position. But those are those are some highlights of my 17 years here. Awesome. Wow. That's really in depth with history and with interdisciplinary work. Describe your interest, research interest to me a little bit more in depth. Has anything in your life significantly impacted and fostered these interests? Oh, goodness. I mean, lots and lots of things. And so I, I think it's worth noting that, I mean, research interests and the, the 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 kinds of research you do, you live with projects for a very, very long time, right? A, a book takes years and years to write. And so there's a very personal investment. I mean, it's obviously professional, but there's also a personal investment in all this. So um, the stories of how I got there, and I think this is true of a lot of professors, are often, you know, go into a person's biography, right? And it's sort of personal biography. So when I was a child, I lived in Switzerland for a year. My last name is Swiss German, and we have relatives there. But my father, who was a physicist, had a sabbatical in Zurich. And so I went to Swiss schools and learned German. I have no doubt that my interest in European history, Central Europe, came out of that. And my, you know, as a child learning German and being able to speak that. I will say also, though, that, uh, you know, the time I came of age in life was central too. So I came of age right when the Berlin Wall was falling. I was in late college when the Berlin Wall collapsed. And as it happened, I had, I went to William & Mary. I had signed, so I'm from Virginia. I had signed up to do a study abroad program in July, I think, 1989, to start in January 1990. The program was supposed to go to Eastern Europe. When I signed up to go, those countries were all communist. Um, When I actually went in January 1990, the revolutions had all occurred. That timing was, of course, just I mean, it was just an absolutely fascinating place to be, a fascinating world to live in as these changes were occurring. And that also reinforced my interest in modern European history. And and my research has subsequently, my first two books were on intellectual history. One of them focused on Vienna, where I had studied in undergraduate school. And the next one moved across the Iron Curtain and looked at the philosophy that was born in Germany and Austria, but was picked up by dissidents in Czechoslovakia and Poland in um, the 1970s. And so I think that is directly linked to my personal experiences. So uh, yeah, research is often very, very, very personal in ways. And so I, I, I think there's no way around that sort of, in my case, that kind of biographical impact on my on my research. 
Wow. So you were probably one of the first people to see Eastern Europe after like post-communism, after the revolution. Well, I doubt if I was the first. But <laughs> I was certainly, well, yeah. But I was certainly among a group that, for instance, I was in um, Bucharest in Romania about three months after the fall of Ceausescu. I mean, um, and so I remember looking around his the outside and inside of his palace and, you know, seeing remnants of the of the strife that had taken place there. And that has an impact. I mean, I was only 20, I guess I was 21 at the time. So of course there was a lot that I missed, but I think at that age, in some ways, the key thing is, is just this kind of sense of the importance of it and the sense that, you know, what happens in history is can often be extraordinarily dramatic. Um, and that has stuck with me. I mean, I, I will say even as a child, I was fascinated by history. I and mean, I remember at six, seven, eight years old, liking to make timelines of the ancient world, sort of kind of nerdy stuff like that. But so in that sense, I mean, it was just a kind of outgrowth of 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 interest I've had of long uh, for long standing. So I'm one of those lucky people who got to sort of who got to pursue as a profession something that has been a a kind of interest and passion for as long as I can remember. But these other incidents helped to sort of reinforce that. Um, I mean, it was it, it's it's remarkable to experience such a dramatic turning point in history, and it can fuel a career. And I think in my case, it it helped to. Yeah, I think that it definitely, I, I'm thinking in terms of like, if I, at my age, were to witness something like that, I think it would leave an impact on me forever and especially influence my direction of my career in terms of like what my passions are. And that's really cool that you're able to take a passion of yours mm -hmm. um, and a lifelong interest and be able to translate that um, into your career. That's really something that not everyone gets to do. Yeah. You're right. I, I'm lucky. Very lucky. I saw that you are also into composition. Um, yes. So we we kind of covered like what inspired you to become a historian, but what inspired you to become like a composer and how does history and composition, do they go together? Like, how do you, how do they overlap for you if they do? So I don't really, I'll admit, I don't think of myself as composer. I think of it more, I think of myself more as a songwriter. I mean, I just, I, you know, I certainly didn't do the extensive training that professional composers do. But I have been, um, I mean, it's it's in a way similar and opposite with history. So growing up, there were sort of two passions, uh, sort of the history one, which involved travel and interest in overseas work and Europe that, that was tied up in the, the history. So I was, for example, growing up, never, never terribly interested in U.S. history, which I'm sure comes straight out of my time living in Europe and the like. And actually, I've found U.S. history increasingly more interesting as an adult. But music similarly. So I grew up playing piano and trombone. And there was a point late in high school, right, when one has to make decisions. And the decision was, do I go on and major in music or do I go on and major in history? I knew it was going to be one of those two. And it would have been trombone playing. I chose history and I have tried to quit music I can't tell you how many times and I have just quit quitting. I have absolutely failed to quit doing music. I mean, so I have been playing in rock bands really since I was a teenager and all through, well, since then, I mean, through adulthood. So in undergraduate school, I had a band that performed in clubs in Washington. In graduate school, I was in a, a band out at University of California, Berkeley, where I went to school. 
And during this time, I also took, you know, classes in music theory and music composition, some of it as breadth requirements at William and Mary and others just even in graduate school out at Berkeley, I would audit them as a way to take a break from writing a dissertation. And so, you know, it, it was just something I was never able to leave behind. And about five, 10, 15 years ago, after putting out a few albums with my the band formed in graduate school, and the a, a best friend of mine and I formed a band that was a basis of our friendship. Um, and he and I released a number of albums. And we decided to to write a musical, thinking few people did it. Uh, luckily, we were ignorant of that. But we wrote a musical based on poets in World War One, British poets in World War One. So it was a history-based musical. And it went to the New York Musical Theater Festival and played at a festival at the Kennedy Center. And it gave me the occasion to bring that back to JMU. So JMU students did a reading. So it wasn't a full production, but it was a stage reading where they had scripts at JMU. And then in turn, they did the same thing at a festival up at the Kennedy Center. And so I was able to incorporate JMU in the process. And during the same year, the same semester, it was at the Kennedy Center. I was able to teach a class with a music professor and with a theater professor in which students researched local history. So Harrisonburg history and wrote short 10-minute musicals on it. And those were performed at the end of the semester at Court Square Theater. So it's been actually really wonderful to be able to bring these two things together. For years, I sort of quietly on the side did music, but then with a musical, when the musical moved somewhere, I was able to incorporate it into, into sort of my broader JMU portfolio. So that's been really, that's been really terrific. I mean, how do they relate? Obviously, in some ways, they're two different pursuits, but I actually feel them often very related. I mean, the obvious thing is that they both deal with time, right? So my first book that I published was on conceptions of time as an intellectual historian. And so for some reason, I'm really interested in concepts of time and a basic level, right? History and music are both very temporal and and they're, they they focus on change over time. And I often feel when I'm writing or researching history that I'm concerned about the the flow or the rhythm of ideas. It's almost a felt sense of how an argument or wording has to proceed. I mean, and and I've, I've been acutely aware of that since my 20s as I write, that I'm often thinking almost about the musical structure of how the ideas proceed. So to me, the two very, very much go together. And, and I actually... One of my future projects that I that I very much want to write, I envision a book that I will call, I think, History is Music, that tries to look at how there's been a lot of writing about the poetics of history. That is how historians use metaphors, metonymy, synecdoche to shape their ideas. But I think there's also a, a way in which structure, shape and movement have a musical dimension that I'd like to explore in various ways. So I think that's a future project. That's so exciting. And especially for, for students to be able to conceptualize two different things at the same time. And you're right, they both they both do concern time, but in, in ways that I think can overlap and can be different from each other. You already touched on what you want, might want to work on in the future. Is there anything that you're currently working on? Anything that's inspiring you right now? Yeah, well, I am currently, after the Guggenheim Fellowship, I am putting the finishing touches on a book 
on the history of international development. The book is called Their Future, A History of Ahistoricism in International Development. So ahistoricism means a tendency to overlook history, to not consider history. So development, what I'm arguing is that, so I had those two years when I worked in development, right, before coming back to JMU. And what struck me is how much development is conceived as a kind of technical enterprise, sort of like fixing a car or healing a sick body, right? It's the same everywhere. And so it's treated in this sort of technical way as if what you do to fix a problem in, say, Bolivia would be the same as you might to fix the same problem in Bangladesh, right? And yet, as a historian, my sense is those are so very different. The experiences of the people are so very different. And so often that unique historical difference is overlooked in each case. So what my book is trying to do is ask, why is it that development was thought of primarily ahistorically, that is, as a technical enterprise, and not as a part of the local history and experience of the communities and countries involved? So it looks at a history of development theory, so economists and the like who were uh, who were writing plans and policies for development. But it also looks at several case studies of countries around the globe where programs were put in place and what struggles they had and tries to argue that we should really think of development as a much more contextual, historical task. And so we, we should think of development as more of a task that engages with the experiences of the communities and people involved that may look very different in each place because their histories and experiences are different, even if technically the problem seems to be the same on the surface. There was actually also a very personal birth to this project. It was a Tuesday, August something in the year 2003. The very first day I started at my job at a USAID contractor in Washington, D.C., before I was at JMU, I remember being taken on an orientation tour of the office where I was starting by the person who worked there. She's terrific at what she does. I was hired as a proposal writer to write proposals. If USAID wants to run a project in, say, Morocco, I would write the proposal. You should fund our organization to do it. And I remember her taking me on a tour and and I said in the process, so let's say I'm writing a proposal for a project about schools in Morocco, right? So this is what I had to do. Where would I go to find out something about the history of the education system in Morocco? And her reaction was to laugh at me. And remember, I had just gotten my PhD in history. She laughed and then she said, well, there are probably some CIA documents online. And I thought, whoa. And that was the beginning of the book. She has since become a very good friend. She's excellent at what she does. And what became clear over my years there And then I continued to consult afterwards, so I would go evaluate projects, is that there's just no incentive structure for incorporating history, right? People look back, the companies that bid on projects look back two or three years because they want to know what the incumbent did so they can outcompete them. There's just little memory and little inducement to consider the past when designing projects. And so that's what I got interested in. As it happened, the person who hired me, I got very lucky to get in development. The person who hired me, with whom I'm still a very good friend, and we co-edited a book on development, he's the only other person I have ever met who did graduate work in history in development. And so by chance, when I was looking to get into a new field, 
you know, because I couldn't find an academic job, he happened to be hiring. I probably would not have a development career had it not been for that, right? And my life would be very different. But sometimes ignorance and luck work in your favor, and it did here. So, so yeah, that that's what drew me into it. And so, and that's what the book is about. That's so interesting that you're a proposal writer for them and that you can combine, mm-hmm. you can, you have such a unique perspective on mm-hmm. how the past informs the present and the future. And not just like the couple of years past, as you were saying, but right. very, very long ago, um, cultural right. pasts and histories. So there, there's, of course, a large literature on development, but the literature tends to be divided. So there's a lot that looks at a lot of books and articles that look at development policy. And then there's a lot of books often by anthropologists that look at the impact on beneficiaries. So those people in communities around the globe who, you know, have had schools or health interventions, there's very little, there are some, but there's very little that actually looks at the role of practitioners, people who write proposals and implement projects. And yet that's often the juncture. That's where, you know, ideas from communities around the world might be able to come back to say Washington or London and where policy gets translated out into the world. And so part of what I'm trying to do is also broaden beyond the policy beneficiary network to bring in development practice and say, look, this is this is part of what's important in development. And it's both theory and practice that cultivate a historical tendencies. It seems that you're like at a really cool intersection that's very, it's very niche and unique with your interests and with your career past and where where you're going in your future and with your future interests. I'm really curious what eventually brought you to James Madison University. Oh, well, I got a job. (laughs) (laughs) There was an advertisement for their intellect, European intellectual historian was retiring and they put out an ad. And I, so I'm from Fairfax originally. And it's unusual to land so close to home in academics. You could really land anywhere, of course. But as it happened, there was this job that looked like it was written for me. It was a Central European intellectual historian. And so applied and they called me and I and I and I got the job. So, yes, I mean, that, too, there's a lot of I think in, you know, I think in professional life and a lot of things there are luck elements that we tend to discount. And, and so clearly, obviously, there, too, I mean. I happened to be looking for work at the time when, you know, a job that looked like it was written for me was came open. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's I, I think and I think it's true for a lot of us in academic academics is so very hard. It is, unfortunately, especially in the humanities, it is just an extraordinarily difficult field to get into. There just are fewer jobs than than, um, you know, than PhDs produced. And in, in the past five or 10 years, I think there has been a tendency on programs to accept fewer PhDs to sort of catch up with the, with the market. But still, I think you have to go in with eyes open and realize that after six, seven, eight years of graduate work, it may be that there's not your idea, uh, ideal job. I think it helps to, I mean, I would tell students to look, think about other things you enjoy doing or other things that can, you can use a history degree for. JMU is pretty good at this, but a lot of graduate programs are not, right? You're taught by professors whose world is dominated by being professors. And so the thought of doing another career with a graduate degree in history doesn't come naturally. So I think it's useful to think how skills can be translated. So I had taught before landing at JMU 
and with my history PhD, I had taught high school history and humanities, and then of course worked in development. So imagine those are two possibilities. Imagining what you can do with that writing. The proposal writing is not incidental. One of the things that students can and should cultivate in their graduate work is just an ability to write very clearly. What I certainly found in Washington was that people often don't write, they don't like to write, and they don't do it very well. So if you can write well, it's a real skill. I mean, everyone writes proposals, everyone's looking for funding. So that's another thing to keep in mind. And, you know, NGO work, think tanks, not only NGO work, for-profit work where they have, where people need proposals. Students are often not taught how to translate the things they study into skills, right? The ability to read and synthesize a lot of material and express it or summarize it very clearly and concisely. That's a very powerful skill that can shape policy, company policy, and if you're working in Washington, um, obviously, administration policy, aid policy, depending on what you go into. So I do think it's really important to imagine other things as a student that you can do with history degree. At undergraduate work, most won't go on to. So to, to imagine how the skills can translate. And the other thing is, you you know, you have to develop a thick skin, right? The job market's bad. If you really want to do it, you're going to hear a thousand times, why do you want to do that? The job market's bad and you probably should hear it. And if in the end you say, I get the job market's bad, I get I might not get a job, but I still really want to do it, then you should do it, right? If you're going to be deterred by, you know, the bad market, then maybe you don't really want to do it. So I think it's, I think gauging your, you know, your personal commitment even in the face of professional odds is important. And then if it is really something you absolutely want to do, don't be, don't be deterred, right? It's your life as a student, right? Live your life, not what someone else thinks your life should be. Right, right. I agree with you. And it's interesting that you were a proposal writer. It's such a useful skill. The undergraduate writing level class is so important. Even as you get up into the graduate level, what's really going to help even in research is if you can articulate that research. Absolutely. And, and some different disciplines kind of expect you to already know how to write. And so being able to translate complicated information for an audience that doesn't know anything about policy or about maybe you're writing for a particular country of concern. It's so important and being able to highlight those writing skills anywhere you go, it's really important. I think that the humanities, especially at JMU, does it well where they kind of weave in uh, your writing skills with the different research that you're doing. Um, everyone has a pretty good eye on what is going to be acceptable in a writing sphere and what, what students can improve on. I think that's really great that you were able to take your degree and say, okay, like this one thing isn't working out for me. What What else can I apply this to? What else did this teach me? Because yeah, you can get a degree in anthropology or history or English, but what are the underlying skills that employers are looking for when you're going out to the job market that relate to that, that you you also did? You, you, you could say you did like some project management, like working in groups. You could do, you did some professional editing, so all those different things, right? They work together so well. Yeah. And I think students, I mean, I wasn't very deliberate about it. It's sort of I mean, in a way, I feel like I lived my professional development backwards. And I think people, students can be more deliberate. So I got the PhD, then explored these other careers. It makes more sense, I think. And you can be more deliberate and self-aware than I was. You know, get your undergraduate degree. And before going to graduate school, 
try out several careers. I mean, knowing what your interest is. I mean, don't sort of get caught in feeling like you have to go immediately because that makes it less lumpy if you do, you know, for, for later. Although I should add, even later, trying not to get caught up in the kind of I'm too old to do X, Y, Z. I, I don't that was an important hurdle for me to overcome. And so I think it's useful for students not to get caught up in that, but also, you know, sort of more deliberate at the outset. Be thinking about the range of careers even in undergraduate school that you might be interested in, right? No one is just one thing. And so it's useful to, to a certain extent, explore the many possibilities for your life. You can't do everything, right? But to explore the possibilities as you're planning and not wait for things to just happen. Oh, I'm not happy here. What do I do now? Right. Be sort of proactive. So I I would encourage students to think about that and don't feel they have to, you know, race into a final decision when they're 22. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think I think a lot of undergraduate students kind of coast through and don't ask themselves or ask people that are close to them, like, hey, like, what am I good at? What do you think I'm really good at? I, I certainly did that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, students do that. Yeah, most definitely. And there's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure now. I think I mean, there was when I was in school, but perhaps more so now about to know what you want to do, make sure it's sufficiently money earning and to know by the time you're 21 or 22. Right. And that's, it's not that that's bad. You do have to earn money, but the decisions you make at 22 don't have to determine everything about your career for the rest of your life. There is more flexibility, I think, than people will allow. I I I do believe that that history or the humanities more generally has far more marketable skills than people give them credit for. As As you say, the ability to write is, you know, there's just enormous place for that in many professional worlds. But people tend to hear history or humanities and ask, well, what do you do with that? Right. It just takes a broader sense of creative thinking. And I think the humanities, like when you get into any kind of discipline within the humanities, you kind of learn how to be persuasive in your writing. And that can translate to the job market, right? Yeah, like like you said, like a lot of there is a lot of pressure to have everything figured out by 21, 22. But I think it's important to know what you like doing, what you dislike doing, and just Absolutely. kind of look for roles that have the things that you like to do and to not narrow yourself down so early. Everyone should try and get as much experience as possible. The other thing that I think is very important about the humanities, and by that I mean not just history, but literature, philosophy, anthropology, et cetera, is, I mean, we live in a world that is, of course, incredibly diverse. And we have to work with people with all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of experiences, all sorts of views. And I think at its best, the humanities can cultivate a kind of empathy for this, so an ability to think beyond your own experience and if not never fully understand, at least appreciate other people's experiences and the value they might they might offer. Of course, it can be used for the bad as well. It can be used to sort of impose your own, right? But at its best, I think it can open up greater and cultivate greater empathy for diversity, a greater ability to sort of be flexible and understand different ways of doing things, right? And different perspectives and viewpoints. So I think that's one of the other great advantages of the humanities that I don't know if that's exactly a skill, but in the workplace, 
boy, is that valuable. And I do think you can put it on a TV, you know, experience working in diverse workplaces, experience um, managing diverse types of people, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. It's one of the soft skills that people tend to not think about, but it ends up being really important when it comes down to it. When you're when you're looking at two people that have, you know, a lot of the same skills, what are the, some of the skills that you know, you might not write down or things that you might mention in an interview, for example, that could be really, really useful. I'll add one thing since you're asking about a career, and this is for students as well. So I, before, after getting my PhD and before working in development, I taught high school for a period of time, which is really in, in its own way is valuable because you're forced to teach about all sorts of things that you might not know, right? Academics cultivate narrow types of expertise. And I was forced to learn much broader. But it also meant that during the summer, I had time to volunteer for various organizations to test out if I wanted to do something different going forward. I knew I wasn't going to be a high school teacher forever. And so during those times, I worked for an organization that did international work overseas, writing things for them. I also worked as a journalist. And for people who want to strengthen their writing, I just worked for a local paper. I was living in Massachusetts at the time. And they sent me out to work on everything from a local shoe factory to laying water pipes in the local community to a local dump and complaints about the odors coming from a local dump. These were things I knew nothing about, but very quickly I had to learn and write in a clear, cogent way. And that actually helped me very much when I went for the development job, because I remember my the person who was hiring, this guy I mentioned who had studied history in the past and who I'm now close friends with. His comment was, look, we know you know education. But what if we have to send you out to Nigeria to look at a project about building roads and infrastructure? You know nothing about that. Can you learn quickly? And as it happened, I had put some of my journal articles that had come out in the local paper. And I said, well, look, here's an article I just wrote about laying pipes infrastructure in a in a town north of Massachusetts. I know nothing about it. But here I, I quickly went and interviewed people and learned and wrote it. And they were impressed. And so if for writing, doing local journalism is great. I mean, it forces you to be able to just write, write, write about an array, about an array of things. All this is radically different from the expertise that's cultivated in academics, but it, which is, you know, you sink yourself in for years into something and that has great value, but it's also useful if you can find ways to volunteer or try out these things, it can really give you a sense for what you're good at and what you don't like. That's very true. So with your diverse background with academics, with the workforce. I just wanted to ask you, like, what classes do you teach? Can you describe a little bit about each course? And do you incorporate your personal search interests in these courses or any of these other lessons that you've learned along the way? Yeah, it depends on the class and if it's relevant. So like I said at the beginning, I teach courses in modern Europe. So Holocaust, um, right now I'm teaching communism in Eastern Europe. My first job after undergraduate school, I was an English teacher in Czechoslovakia right after right after the Velvet Revolution and the fall of the wall. So I was there 91 to 92, and that contributed to the abiding interest in Central and Eastern Europe. I've taught 20th century German history. I've taught 19th and 20th century history. Those come straight out of my training insofar as I can. And as it's of interest to students, I will tell them about you know, my own experiences, it looked, for instance, in Prague in the years immediately after the fall of the wall, the development work. So I teach a history of development class. Similarly, if it's relevant, I will bring in my own experience. But of course, a lot of it goes back to World War II and before. 
and charts that history. And it's, it, it draws on my research, but it's not always the personal narratives. Similarly, intellectual history, that's my training. And we'll often look at either major works of so major thinkers in especially the European tradition, or at the graduate level, we might study a whole range of works from one thinker and look at the kinds of social problems that he or she dealt with. As I said, I have been able to incorporate music through the course I told you about, about students writing short musical, or I taught a course that is sort of an intellectual history course called Music and Society, where we looked at ways that in the 20th century in Europe and the US, social movements affected music, and in turn, music shaped and framed social debates. So these are all very personal in their way, and I, I bring in insofar as it's relevant, certain incidents. But I, I tend to try to pull on more the literatures and skills I have in order to present the material in its integrity, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, one of the great things at JMU is that I've been able to draw on this range of interests and teach and research in a range of interests. They all do fall within those sort of three areas. So modern history, development, and the arts, especially music. And there is overlap between them. But I've been able to do that at JMU in a way that I might not in other places. And so it feels like there's a lot of talk about interdisciplinarity, but I've been allowed to actually cultivate it at JMU through my teaching and research. And so that is something I've appreciated greatly at the school and in my department. That's awesome. That's awesome that you're able to cultivate these these really cool history classes that have some relation to what you had interest in in the past and relation to what the students might be interested in and what they're currently learning, what what's currently going on in the world. I know that you've been all over the place in terms of where you've lived, where you've visited. So what is your favorite part about JMU and Harrisonburg community or just being back in Virginia? Oh, well, I mean, some of that doesn't have to do with JMU. So I should say I don't, I lived in Harrisonburg the first five years that I was there, but my wife is also a professor. So she's an, she's a literature professor, English literature professor, and she teaches at Howard University. So we live in Manassas, which is between you know, the Shenandoah Valley and downtown DC. So I don't live in Harrisonburg anymore. I mean, the obvious advantages of living in Virginia near where I grew up is, of course, grandparents and family in the area. I mean, that's, that's been, that's been terrific. As far as what I've appreciated most about JMU, I think it's what I just said. The, there are many different types of universities from community colleges up to Research one that is, you know, sort of heavy research institutions like the, you know, at the pinnacle, like the Harvards and Yales. What's nice at JMU, which is sort of in the middle, but is moving up the research track, is I've been able to cultivate an active research career, even as I explore sort of a range of different interests across disciplines. So I don't know that all universities would have enabled me to do modern European history and do development work and do music. And yet JMU has applauded all of them. And that has been, I think, for me, one of the great rewards. And I hope for students, they're able to see that it's a that you can have this sort of rich range of interests. Everything has a history after all, right? And so 
so hopefully they're able to see that you don't have to, as they think about education, narrowly focus on only one small sector, but but can and should try to develop the many interests and talents that they have within reason, of course. I mean, you can't do everything, but but anyway, that that is what I would say is the is the thing I've appreciated most at JMU. That's great to hear. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Okay. Thanks, Connor. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. Make sure to follow us at Instagram and Twitter at JMU Cohen Center. And be on the lookout for more conversations at the Cohen Center.